0: News. News. news, 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 New York City,
1: the FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute, <laughs> FAQ, <A-Q. laughs> it's FAQ NYC, I'm Harry Siegel, representing Brooklyn along with Professor Christina Greer, hello,
2: hi there Harry Siegel, hey, how are
1: you, oh man I'm living the life, and we are here along with Alex Brooklyn in Manhattan,
3: hey,
1: hello, And veteran reporter and FAQ'er Katie Honan in Queens, who, drumroll please, is joining us as a new guest host starting this week. And what a week. Hey. Hey, Katie. Welcome aboard. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So, some stuff happened in New York this week. Uh, Mostly uh, on Tuesday, Governor Andrew Cuomo who's dominated New York's political scene for more than a decade, uh, abruptly resigned, or rather announced his resignation. Uh, later in the pod, you're going to be hearing a conversation with Afia out of Mensa about Cuomo's enablers in the black community, and we'll talk about Kathy Hochul's, rhymes with locals, first addressed to New Yorkers on Wednesday. As the clock is ticking on these suspiciously long two weeks Cuomo says he's giving himself, though no one's seen his resignation letter yet before stepping aside. But right now, let's jump right in. Katie, I see Donald Trump, remember him, Mm -hmm. appears to have dunked on Cuomo's decision to resign, putting out a statement this morning that says, in full, bullies never fight. So, less than a year ago, the president and New York's uh, beloved Cuomo sexuality-inspiring, Emmy-winning governor both represented Queens. Now, they're fast becoming afterthoughts, it appears. Does this mean that, to quote the philosopher, the bridge is over and Queens got dropped?
4: <laughs> I, we, I would like to point out that both of the people you mentioned, Donald Trump and Andrew Cuomo, they have not lived in Queens for decades. They're both from a very specific part of Queens, Jamaica Estates, and uh, Cuomo is from House Hills, I believe. So we could kind of, if we could sep- separate that, you know, Grand Central to whatever, just to co- coordinate it off. Um, you know, I don't think, especially for for Donald Trump, a lot of people within the political establishment in Queens had long denounced him, and I think perhaps that process will now begin uh, for Andrew Cuomo. But again, Andrew Cuomo, he was living in Mount Kisco, Albany. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a big borough. There's a lot of people.
3: There's a One lot of, these of days. We'll have to get you to run down the neighborhoods and how they connect with the kind of politico you might find there.
4: Oh, no, no. See, yeah, it's changing. It's always changing. And I think that, who knows, that might get me into trouble. But yes, you know, Cuomo and Trump had been friends before, um, I guess, before Trump got into politics. So uh, they both seem to be Queens guys with father issues. That also That's, is the That's the common
2: denominator. That's the common denominator. The daddy issues. Well, you know, I'm wondering if that's the common denominator. It's definitely the common denominator for everyone who runs for the presidency and has been president. I'm now curious to see if my theory extends to governors, because we had Elliot Spitzer and his dad. We have David Patterson and his dad. We've got Cuomo and his dad. I don't know much about Pataki's dad. But I'm curious if this, like, the male Oedipal daddy drama extends to gubernatorial uh, leadership and not just presidential leadership.
4: I think it accepts. Uh, you could look at Mayor De Blasio. He seems to have some issues with with his father and and you know his childhood and then what it was like. Very close with his mom. So yeah, this is. Um, we should. Is there a resident psychologist that we could come put on the show
3: to <laughs> perhaps psychoanalyze our elected officials? Ooh. I, I mean, you know, the, we're, we're Jeb Bush is another big governor with daddy issues that we're hmm. uh that yeah. uh wonder- George W. George W. Well,
2: I would argue George H.W. Yeah. in the shadow of Prescott in Connecticut.
4: Yeah. This is all, we are ripe for an amateur psychologist over here, but that seems yeah. to be, like, as you said, Christina. The, the I want to know momentator.
2: more about Governor Northam's daddy issues from Virginia, since he likes <laughs> to <lets laughs> dress up in blackface. <laughs> Those might be a little more straightforward.
3: Call me Governor Daddy will be the name of the episode. No, no. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of too g- s- gross faces
2: here. <laughs> too too soon, <laughs> soon, Alex. Right. <laughs>
1: Just going back to the dads for a second. Yeah. So when when Donald Trump is a uh, young man in his thirties and he's trying to make a name for himself, he's moving into Manhattan's, he's not gonna do his dad's low rent Brooklyn stuff anymore. And he buys a football team, uh not not a not a real professional football team, but a USFL team. And he uh hires this law firm that is stocked with veterans from the Cuomo administration, the Mario. Cuomo administration. Uh, a few months after he does that, Andrew Cuomo, who was in his 20s at the time, joins the firm. Uh, Trump pays them very generously. All these guys are obviously politically wired with the governor's office. And what work exactly was done and what work Andrew did is a mystery that at this point, with both men out of power, is probably never going to get fully answered. But uh, there's a lot of Family history uh, be- between those two and and money exchanged uh, going going back to when they were uh, young,
4: and to bring it back to Queens, not that you asked, Trump had wanted to build a football stadium at Willett's Point. and mm. Willet's Point, the body shop owners back in the sixties, Robert Moses wanted to use that space for the World's Fair. He wanted to use it for parking, and then they were going to put a Little League fields there, and the body shop owners, their businesses were saved. By a young lawyer named Mario Cuomo. Uh, so this is all, it's real mm-hmm. estate. It's maybe it does all go back to Queens, but yeah, that I had done some research into Will's point And that was Mario. It was one of the few defeats Robert Moses had.
3: Speaking of Willet's point, like just briefly, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but where are we with Willett's point? The de Blasio kind of clearing sort of stalled and failed halfway, stalled halfway through. I don't know if it's failed or not, um, but like during COVID, I can't imagine how the bi- businesses that were planning to kind of egg- make a mass exodus just got, just started staying around.
4: They, they just a few weeks ago actually broke ground on the remediation on phase one of the project. So... It's very kind of complicated figuring out the phases and there are still some businesses there. There are plenty that have been cleared out. So when you go, it's like half of it is completely empty and cleared, like totally raised. And then the other, there's a smaller part where there are still operating mechanic shops and auto body shops. But yeah, so they just started that remediation. It'll take a long time. And yeah, maybe when your baby is ready to move out of the house, he can...
3: Move to Willet's <laughs> point at this rate. Get a luxury well, I mean, condo. Yeah if, yeah. if
2: de Blasio's on the case, then I don't know, maybe baby's grandkids can make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> He's clearly not into working. Um, I will say this, and clearly this is the Queens episode now that we've got Katie Honan. I'm sorry. Um, really all roads do start it. yeah, that's right. No, all roads do start in Queens. I was born in Queens. So I just feel like, you know, tread lightly, Harry Siegel, you got two Queens girls. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Like Queens, Queens over Brooklyn all day. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Harry's Harry, Harry so got again, no words. That. Yeah, he's just like, you know what? I don't want that. You Treading don't want lightly. this beef. You don't lightly. want this smoke. Um, okay, so let's get back on track with our dear governor Harry. You've got some thoughts.
1: I do, I do, but I'm gonna I'm gonna get us right back off track. <laughs> Speaking of rails, and one more Queens question <laughs> before before we really at Cuomo. So if I look around Queens. There's the uh, rail yard by Aqueduct. There's Willett's Point, which we just talked about. There's Long Island City, where uh, Amazon was going to be, but then is not going to be, and goodbye, helipad. So it strikes me there's a ton of uncertainty right now. There's political uncertainty. There's uncertainty about a recovery uh, health-wise and economy-wise and so on. But let's say for a minute things boom again, and like the world's capital keeps flowing in, and all this money is looking for a safe haven here. Manhattan's overdeveloped. The super tall luxury buildings are not doing so well. It seems like Queens is the place where there are actually big parcels left for massive development projects. And I, I could imagine the borough being transformed for, for, for better or worse in the next decade. And I'm, I'm just curious. Obviously, that's all speculative. But uh, your, your thoughts on that? It seems to, to me at least like where, where the remaining sites where people with big schemes or projects could could get things done.
4: Yeah, I mean, the, I guess the next biggest development in Queens would be Sunnyside Yards, which, um, before COVID, there was a lot of opposition, the same kind of groups of people who opposed Amazon as well. Um, not happy with the EDC's plan and for Sunnyside Yards and I guess putting like a, a decking over it and then building, um, I mean, and again, to tie it back into Cuomo, the other large development project. Uh, transportation wise is the air train to LaGuardia, which is opposed by many, 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 many people. Um, of course, I don't have any opinion on anything because I'm a reporter, but if you would objectively look at the a map. <laughs> a map and the, the It doesn't link, go to the airport. And, and I'm sorry. And like the, the link and the route. Look, and I, I live in Woodside. The Q70 bus can take you to LaGuardia airport. Is it pretty? No is it pleasant? I don't know. It's a bus, but it gets you there, right? I think everyone's always asked for just extend the end train to Astoria. It's not a one seat ride. You have to take whether it's the seven train or the Long Island Railroad to Willits Point. You know, and I heard all these different sources told me his grand scheme of Cuomo wanted to like make it the Mario Cuomo air train and change things around. And, but, you know, also a lot of people say, look, it's just for people from Long Island to come get off the Grand Central Park and then go to the airport. So, yeah, I, there has been since this Cuomo resignation, I saw last night the Daily News reported that people within the, the Port Authority are like, please stop this now. We don't want it. Um So that's, you know, that, that's sort of another the development. The, the, the pro, I forget how much, how many billions it's estimated, but, i 'm not sure how many people would take it and and how actually it could alleviate i mean you 're going to be going past you 're going to be going beyond the airport to go around to get off and get on another train. I was just in Seattle last week. They have a light rail from the airport that was actually very easy, so I mm-hmm. thought this is simple but yeah. I mean,
3: the a to the j the a to j f k again not pretty but easy yeah like it's not it's not like above ground you 're stuck underground that whole time, but still. It's really easy, yeah. And you don't have to go past anything. You don't have to go crazy,
4: yeah. And I mean, that's a two seat ride too. But if you have an opportunity, and who knows how much it would cost, but to extend an, a, a subway that that's already there and elevated further to make it simple to get to the area, yeah. The the Will's Point Way is, and who knows, maybe that decision to put it there was tied to data issues. Who knows? Um, but yeah, so I don't know what what that future is. Obviously, the Laguardia renovation is continuing. Um, It's so much further along, but the air train, that could be a casualty, but to some people, a good casualty of, of Cuomo's resignation.
3: Quick shout out to Airport News. Um, This one guy, this one amazing guy, Jeff, just like does all the kind of like trade news on all the airports in uh, New New York and New Jersey. And it's a fantastic read and it's a fantastic Instagram. So quick plug for that guy who I may or may not go hang out with uh, for FAQ in one of the airports one of these days. (laughs) Oh,
4: I'm going to follow him right now. Yeah, he's great.
1: So back to Cuomo for a minute. Is this his political obituary? You know, it was widely noted that his resignation speech sounded a lot like a stump speech, that he's leaving with a big campaign war chest. And with it not clear if the assembly will proceed, I would bet not on impeachment, which means if they don't convict him in that, he'd be able to run again. And I would also guess that there won't finally be any criminal charges, just as there weren't for Spitzer or Schneiderman after they resigned. So if all that turns out to be right, this is a, a damaged, politically damaged man who's had a ton of power, but Query doesn't see himself as done. And while in the course of trying to fight this, he kept saying, I'm just an, a grandfatherly guy. I'm a 63-year-old man. I've noticed a lot of these guys start saying those sorts of things and, like, finding walkers and stuff uh, when when they're on trial in the court of public opinion or an actual court. But, you know, then he gets into his uh, muscle car and, like, proudly walks away. This is a, a relatively young guy. I, is this the political end of Andrew Cuomo and the Cuomo family that's run New York for the majority of my lifetime? Uh, or, or, or is this a pause in a larger story? Do you think, Katie, and, you know, obviously we're all going to find
4: out yeah um like you note, know, that sort of older man oh i didn't know it was bad and this is the way i am oh i'm italian this is what we say you know mm-hmm. you have to take responsibility for your actions and the way people perceive them um it's there's plenty of people who maybe have really grating personalities but if everyone's reacting negatively to you you try to make adjustments it's this sort of feigning ignorance that at your age and in your position of power, um it's too late. And uh even in his speech, which went, it actually kind of took a sudden turn to the resignation. So much so that I will admit, I went down to go put my clothes in the dryer because I said, oh, I went into my building's basement. I go, oh, this guy's going to go on forever. And then mm. the elevator down, I'm like, oh, he just resigned. So that was my surprise there. <laughs> but I think he... Even in, and I think um some elected officials pointed this out that in his speech it it he sort of he did apologize for some things, but then at the same time, you know, when you don't take the full responsibility for your actions, um, that's that's on you. And he'd been told by multiple people. And I I think too his ultimate downfall is not even so much the sexual harassment and the misconduct, but it is what is widespread and rampant bullying. Um, for years of his public life and other people within his administration and, and what they've allowed and the people who've had these high positions uh, in, in one of the largest, wait, is New York? No, in in, in the in one of the largest states in the country. Um, I was just listening to Brian Lehrer earlier and Rebecca Tracer was on and you know, there's this, I guess, myth that you have to be tough and you have to behave like this to get anything done. But I don't know if it, you have to be that tough. And you have to be that much of a bully to, to be an effective leader.
3: I wonder, like a lot of people mistake the that, that tough bravado for what it takes to be tough. Like they want to show it on the outside. But for me, having experienced some of this, having friends, countless friends that have experienced a lot of this, both in media and in politics, like that it, it is a tough road to show up to work every day when you're being bullied like that or even whether you're being harassed or not but just to like have to meet that every day and still take on your responsibilities and show up and like not burst into tears at work it's like a lot a lot of people talk about how tough he was on people but how tough did his administration like the people that worked for him the people who were bullied and who were harassed like how tough they must have had to be to just show up to that Every day, you know. I mean, I've quit jobs in less than like three months over stuff like that. I can't you imagine mean, doing it for a lot years. One of
1: the people who were bullied were then passing on. Right. Bullying. I mean,
3: that's that's you know? the. I think Harry, that's
2: the nail on the head. It's a culture, and so just because Andrew Cuomo has left, you have say the biggest champion of the bullying and the fear mongering. But everyone else, you know, as they say, shit rolls downstream. So everyone in Albany has always said that, like that is just what you do. You get bullied and, you know, played on a consistent basis. And then you turn around and do it to someone else who has less power than you. I mean, I think that's been my frustration, Katie. I know you had to change laundry. But his apology in many ways was a non-apology because I still felt like he was low-key sort of passing the blame onto other people and not taking full responsibility. Like, unless you fall on that sword completely, you haven't fallen. And he just, he couldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. And so it's just like, yeah, well, you know, I apologize to my gems, my daughters, but it's like, you still haven't recognized the role that you played in getting you to this point where you're now resigning. And he's talking about the media and all these other people. It still had that kind of witch hunt element to it as the undergirding of his
3: statement. We just heard from his lawyer too, like right before that, yeah. going over right. nitpicking every single uh, way in which that Tish James report was unfair to him.
4: And I think, too, in the way in which he said, I'm leaving, it, it still painted him as the hero. And that I think also, as you said, kind of almost sounds like a stump speech where it's, I'm leaving because New York needs me to leave. And it's it's not me, it's we. Well, in this instance, it is you, Governor Cuomo. Right. Um, so... Yeah, that it is him, but it's it's very artfully done. So, and look, and I've spoken to plenty of really strong Cuomo supporters, people who, I speak to people all the time, who ultimately they do think it's political because a lot of people, women, it's all women who I've spoken to, they don't think what he's accused of doing is even that bad. And that's another, you know, that's a much mm-hmm. larger discussion, but um, they're probably in the same camp as him. But yeah, his speech was, I am doing this for you. I love New York. And yeah, and who knows? And again, of course, there's a the political calculation of do you resign to avoid impeachment? So then you can still run for office again. Who knows what will happen
1: with that? So Kathy Hochul has been the lieutenant governor for most of two terms now. She She joins in part because Cuomo is forming the Women's Equality Party. As he's running against Zephyr Teach out, uh you know, feminist ally that he is, and has been sidelined. And you know, she's in western New York. She's three hundred miles west of Albany. Cuomo has been the culture, as we've been talking about, and that bullying goes downhill, but it also means in this vast government that there are all these Cuomo people embedded everywhere. In <clears throat> the state government, the Port Authority, the MTA, SUNY, all around, who have tremendous power and understanding of the levers of power. Is there some other bench that Hochul can reach out to? Is she necessarily going to be depending on Cuomo's people because we've had this monoculture for a decade and there just aren't really other people who know how this all works to turn to? Do you have a sense of how she will or how she should handle that? Because even pulling Cuomo out, all these people who have been part of his system, his way of doing things and and being – New York tough, whether that's loving or not, whether that's actually tough or not, uh, are, 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 are still in these positions of power. She's got 16 months to put a stamp on the office. Like, do, do, do you accept the people who are there? Do you find your own? Like, like how do you expect that she's going to deal with that?
4: for me, you know, I did a little bit of reporting when it was first sort of assumed Cuomo would resign. This was when I was still at the Wall Street Journal. So I spoke to people who knew her well. And the sense I got is she's very well liked. She is an extremely hard worker. Um, some people, you know, and people had said Cuomo was not as, as, not so much as interested in the actual job of the governor, but the theater of it. But I think for Kathy Hochul, who's been to every county in the state, um, I spoke to legislators who would say, hey, you know, she would, they would get a call from her and, and she'd say, I'm going to be in your district tomorrow, would love to grab lunch, kind of a low key thing. So she's done that work, uh, whether she was consciously preparing for this possibility, um, who knows, but she has done that work. And I think maybe this is. I'm, I'll be uncynical, right, which I guess is the unstereotypical of a reporter, but perhaps there are people who've worked in government, the sort of permanent government, who for the past 10 years have worked in that Cuomo culture. But now that perhaps the biggest bully and, and other people are gone, they will fall in line if, if, if another leader is in there, right? So f- perhaps if they were kind of adjusting to who was in charge and now they can adjust to a new person in charge. And if it's someone who's a little bit more low-key, someone who isn't who, someone who isn't Andrew Cuomo, that they could still do their jobs effectively. Because I think to do a full house clearing, it just seems impossible. And the turnover would be a lot. And you always have those people who are doing most of the work, but are kind of shielded from the, the top person.
1: She made her bones in, a, in, in Western New York as like mm-hmm. a real conservative Democrat. Yeah. Like, we're not going to accept your uh, your driver's license for illegal immigrants, governor, dictator sort of yeah. stuff. Then gets elected to Congress because in a basically Republican district because there's a crowded field, the district gets redrawn. She loses her seat, and now she's been part of the, this Cuomo world at the periphery for a long time. But I'm just trying to get some sense of how she might behave as, as, as governor. Like, is this going to be a Jill like thing, where someone who's been playing one position is uh, elevated to another, and their their, their politics shift to match? Uh, or, or is she very strong in these beliefs, or do, do we have much of a sense of that? I know on the, the driver's licenses, for instance, she's without directly saying so, walked away from that position.
3: Yeah, I'm really curious how a Hochul uh, Adams relationship plays out.
1: I think it. I think this is big for Adams. Yeah, right? I think
2: it plays out pretty well because you know Hochul's moderate to conservative. Adams has that vein. And I think that they're both, I think she's a little more brass knuckles than she puts forth. And I think that she and Adams will find an understanding. And what does
3: that mean for the book?
1: Adams is the top elected uh, Democrat in New York. Now he's been talking about himself as the face of the party. He said that when he was next to Andrew Cuomo, like less than a month ago, I think. And like, suddenly like this doesn't happen often. Like the mayor, is really in the driver's seat. Everyone running for governor, including Hochul, is gonna want his endorsement. And kiss the ring. And he, he, he come up there and uh make, make make some some real demands. He brings a base of voters and uh this could be good for New York City, maybe.
2: I think it's great for New York City. Because I mean, think about the people thus far that, you know, are sort of in the conversation. There's Kathy Hochul. there's Tish James, Brooklyn, there's Jumani Williams, Brooklyn, right? I mean, there's you know, some some well, there's de Blasio, Brooklyn. Um <laughs> There's some Long Island folks and obviously some upstate folks, but you know, mm-hmm. Eric Adams is in the position where you come to him. I mean, this is Kathy Hochul's what the first non downstate governor mm-hmm. that we've had, Democratic governor, and how long? I mean,
1: if, nearly a century since FDR, right? For anyone north of West, yeah.
2: Westchester. So, I mean, she's got to, she's got to kiss a lot of rings. Um, but the good thing is, I think for her is that she's been doing that Schumer style, let me. Roll through these districts, so I'm not totally brand new. She didn't really have a policy portfolio, or kind of, you know, that's the role of the lieutenant governor. They're not strong lieutenant governors in this state, or I would argue maybe any state. Um, But you remember when when Patterson became governor overnight? I mean, he was like, uh, I don't know, I don't know where anything is. Like, Spitzer never invited me to any meetings, and I think that Cuomo and Hochul are kind of similar in some ways. She's just been doing her own thing, and she's been slowly but surely distancing herself from him as she could read some tea leaves coming down the pike. So it'll be fascinating to see how Eric Adams uses this power uh next year when we were I thought we were going to have just a relatively quiet primary season but clearly Lol. we're all back in the saddle again.
3: What does this mean for the uh for the uh, assembly the State Senate progressives. What does it mean for the, the state Senate progressives who were all elected, the anti-IDC folks uh, in 2018? You know, Biagi, Salazar, uh, AOC before that, um, Myrie I think
4: they could continue to be adversarial to the governor. I mean, Cuomo was a whole other animal. But with Hochul, especially because she's a bit of a more conservative Democrat, um, clearly they will not be aligned on... A lot of ideology, but I do f- wonder if Kathy will at least try to do the peacemaking thing, and then so will these legislators now that they're sort of... Or at least try to say, look, we're trying to get things done. Let's see how we can... We can get it done. Um, but I guess it will just depend on what she says in her... When she actually takes takes over. It's going to be... I feel like it'll be a long two weeks uh, <laughs> until she becomes the governor. I do not know you had to give two weeks notice as governor, but uh, yeah, they can continue to be adversarial um but it maybe won't be as dramatic because it's someone who's maybe just more focused on the policy and not having their spokesperson call them effing idiots or whatever rich as a party part, as a party had called them that time
2: someone online said this isn't best buy you don't have to give two weeks you can <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> it's like, like yeah because spitzer yeah. left within 24 hours right
4: was it a f- yeah or yeah i mean
2: or a few days
4: yeah it was two not days. two weeks
2: what is he? I mean, you all know this better than I. What is he going to do in these next two weeks?
4: Well, it was funny. On New York One yesterday, there was all this discussion about where he's going to live. And I actually was laughing because Bob Hart's like, he'll have to stay maybe with his mom or his siblings. <laughs> and someone pointed out, you know, they can, like, rent apartments. And I was kind of wondering, you have to move out. Move yeah. your stuff. Yeah, I mean, had he kind of... Th-
1: it's a good thing. It's a good thing you got a $5 million right. book mm-hmm. advance. With $3 million, by the way, trusted to his daughters, which may or may not prove to be a successful way of shielding it from any coming civil actions. But that still leaves him enough money to like, find a nice First, place last, and move Yeah, Yeah,
4: like, he could probably pay a broker fee. I think he'll be okay. Um, but there's that practical <laughs> stuff. Um, I don't know what you do in your final two weeks of a job that you maybe didn't really want to leave. I don't know if you try to... Go. You can't see anything. You're going to be bombarded. I guess you. If I, if I was Governor Cuomo, I'd be in that pool every single day. I'd buy huge shields so the New York Post couldn't get me. But I'd just be in that pool. But that's me. I like pools.
1: I think. I think if I was him, I'd be. And I'm glad I'm not. A whole number of ways. Uh, I'd be cross checking all the FOIL requests that are in and the information we've unlawfully yeah. denied. Uh, removing some of that, um, uh, misfiling a few things, uh, checking out as as carefully as I can the state of, of the uh, ongoing federal investigation uh, and thinking about the people who are in positions of power I placed there who are part of my network and, like, what I can do to, like, get the head off their nails to ensure that they get to stay there, you know, through this uh, coming election and potentially indefinitely. I, I, as someone who doesn't think he's all the way done, I think he has a whole power structure that he needs to do what he can mm-hmm. to to uh, uh, protect and preserve, uh, and that maybe part of why he's buying time. Plus, of course, emotionally, look, this was a guy who, who was America's hero and the anti-Trump nine months ago. He knows that the political winds can change fast, and he's got two weeks. Like maybe maybe there's a giant surge. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, Ebola comes back and he, him and Murphy can start a new uh, quarantine like he insanely did with uh, uh, with Christie. Um, you know, m- maybe he stays. I- I'm sure in his heart that this uh, he knows it's not going to happen. But Maybe this thought those is 10 a
3: women from Westchester uh, who showed up with their signs saying support Cuomo. It's all a Trump conspiracy will actually sway mm-hmm. public opinion. Who can say? Well, I mean, but here's the thing. We've seen how erratic the political
2: winds can be. And we also have to remember, and Katie, you you started off saying this, not everyone is anti-Cuomo. There are a lot of people who think that this is just nonsense and that these quote unquote girls, you know, are just making such a big deal and like dragging down a, a good governor. So I do think that he's spending this two weeks to kind of just kill a little time. You Like, I think he's sort of like, you never know. I mean, we've seen this time and time again, especially with Republicans, where things just kind of breeze over. I don't think it's going to breeze over. I don't think that these charges are going away, nor should they. But Andrew Cuomo, I mean, I think he needs some time. I am curious. Has anyone talked to Sandy Lee? No, but I was just looking, reading up about her
4: new, very attractive and much younger boyfriend yesterday. Uh, he's an actor. He's appeared in CSI and law and order. They were getting a handsy at the farmer's market, according to page six. So I was like, she, you know, again, this is all according to page six. She lost some quarantine weight. She's feeling great. She's got a new boyfriend. I believe there was a clip. Someone had caught up with her before he resigned, but over the weekend, I think, and, and she just said she was thinking of his daughters, which you know, she, which is very sweet. Cause she's known them for a long time, but yeah, I, she has not spoken out. Um, but I am very curious how the relationship ended, if it was truly amicable, if there was if maybe she was aware of any of his misdeeds, alleged misdeeds, and, and that kind of was, was part of it. But yeah, I'm very I would love to I would watch a two hour like 2020 special interview with Sandra Lee.
3: <laughs> I have a quick yeah. question for the three of you. So it, just as I'm thinking about what things Cuomo could possibly do in the future, uh, what about? lobbying? What about development? I mean, here's a place where he has like strong ties in both those worlds. Is that still a possibility? Um, Does he have any pull where he could even go into either of those fields?
4: I mean, he has a law degree, uh, I think maybe with a little bit of time, you know, Elliot Spitzer was back in his family's real estate business. I think he was even adjunct he was an adjunct professor somewhere, I, I believe, at a New York law school, maybe. It's
1: nice to have a billionaire guy. Yeah. Dad, and, right? I,
4: you know, which is something that Governor Cuomo doesn't have. Um, I think with all these people who, I don't know what Eric Schneiderman has been up to. <laughs> Andy Weiner was a different story. But I think with a little bit of time and distance, but I also don't know. And everything I've heard about Andrew Cuomo and, and speaking with people close to him, he just doesn't have friends. So maybe even a guy like Elliot Spitzer had a had a wider network of people who genuine, you know, friends in the real way. Right. Not in the way that when you work in politics or even as a reporter, everyone's your friend when you have a certain job or position. But like your actual friends, I don't know how many he has. Um, I guess it was Joe Porcoco, but yeah, I don't know what he could do. I I think it'll take a little bit of time. Um, But I was thinking when you mentioned that the the women who are still supportive of him. Just this thought of how you do think of people can be two things at once, right? And mm-hmm. I, I think you mm-hmm. can acknowledge Cuomo's role at the beginning of COVID and the work that he did to comfort so many people and, and, and what that meant to people with who he also is within these allegations. And it's very difficult for anybody to, you know, and I think of, I first, heard this quote from the miniseries based on the mayor, former mayor of Yonkers, but show me a hero and I'll write you a tragedy, which is F. Scott Fitzgerald. And that is it. I think when you build people
2: up to such Uh a way, Uh that's what happens. Well, I think, you know, the COVID piece that you bring up is really interesting, largely because, you know, when we think about the, the nursing home scandal, when I talk to some, Folks, they're just like, listen, he had to do what he had to do. He was dealing with a maniac who was president. So they don't even see that as a scandal. They, you know, the sort of the numbers, like people died and whether they died in the nursing home, in transit, in the hospital, they're gone. It's really sad. Cuomo was just trying. He was in survival mode the rest, the way the rest of us were. And so I think that that's also, as the legacy of Cuomo gets rehashed and we try and figure out where he is in the pantheon, this is something that
1: that's still disputable. So to jump in there, Katie, take, take us to a, a big close. When Cuomo is talking about himself, and he thinks a lot about himself and obviously about his historical legacy, he designs posters about it. You know, he, he waxes uh, rhetorically about it. He says, I physically transformed New York like no figure has since uh, Robert Moses. I pulled the economy back from the brink. Uh, you know, sort of with a wink, I, I saved us from becoming California and a progressive disaster, uh, in 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 his telling. And of course, uh, uh, I, I I I masterfully uh, handled the virus. I have my own feelings about all that, but but I just want to ask: when 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 a little time has passed and people are looking back on Cuomo, and not just you know at this moment of political yeah. decline when all the knives are out, uh, what it is he's going to be remembered as? Uh, that he would like and that he would not like.
4: I think COVID will loom really large in that legacy, even though, you know, he was around for hurricane Sandy and and another kind of, and even hurricane, hurricane Irene for parts of upstate, the damage that was done there and how he stepped in that governor of action. But I think it's COVID it's the year 2020 and it's that steady figure that he was for so many people around the world. And But also, like you said, the nursing homes and even in some reporting that I did, just his constant feuding with Mayor Bill de Blasio and how ultimately New Yorkers, New York City residents suffered because of that. Because two grown men with Cuomo being the main aggressor could not get along for the sake of millions of people. But COVID plays a large part in that. Um, And I think he will still be known as this governor of action. Right. You think of what's the and this is really morbid, but like the lead of someone's obituary. What is that like? in parentheses kind of explainer, but it's probably something a, a tough governor who's work. You know, I don't know. I'm not trying to write it, but yeah, it's someone who is committed to do getting things done, but ultimately his own hubris kind of got in the way of a lot of it as well. Um, But it's not all bad when it, when it comes to, especially who he was during COVID. And, you know, there's plenty of people who there's business owners and restaurants who who've hated Cuomo for a long time because of his restrictions. But as Christina said, it was this cloud of figuring out what to do during COVID, all these emergencies, no one really knowing what to do, and how he stood out across the world as somebody who was very, um, he was a comfort to a lot of people.
1: At the same time, of course, that New York had in 2020, the the nation's highest death toll.
4: It's complicated, yeah.
1: Katie, thank you a ton. It's awesome to, uh, to have you on board. Thank and, you. And um, more coming next week, uh, Queens. Queens is not bad. Brooklyn represent. Queen- I right, love you, bro. Awesome. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> I'll represent both. I'll be the bridge. <laughs> You'll be arbitration <laughs> rock or something. <laughs> Great. Just after we gabbed, Kathy Hochul gave her first press conference as New York's governor-in-waiting where she said she didn't want the 14-day transition the Cuomo announced and insisted on, but that she was using the time to put together a cabinet, pick a lieutenant governor to fill the seat she's stepping out of, and set off a game of musical chairs in the process in New York politics, and that shortly she'll give a speech to lay out her vision as the state's 57th governor once she stepped into that role. She stressed that the governor and I have not been close, physically or otherwise, and that I was not aware of any of the allegations whatsoever in the report. She said that no one who was named as doing anything unethical in the report will remain in my administration and that there will be turnover among senior leaders. Finally, asked if she would release the nursing home records that the Cuomo administration had tried to keep out of the view of both the Trump administration and the public, Hochul said, My administration will be fully transparent when I am governor. I am not governor yet.
2: So as we're counting down Cuomo's last days, let's welcome back to the podcast, Afia Atamensa. Afia, welcome back to FAQ NYC. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on again. It's a pleasure and honor. It's always great to have you. So yes. I wanted I wanted to talk to you about some things uh, because I I mentioned it to some folks that I was talking about. And then you mentioned it. And I was clearly like, we need to bring you on the podcast so we can talk about it. Here's here's what's been on my mind. When Cuomo was in a bit of a bind a few months ago, he carried himself up to Harlem and met with the Black delegation, if you will. Charlie Rangel was rolled out, literally. We saw Hazel Dukes out there, and I mentioned this on the podcast. She said, you know, he's like a second son to me. And it was the cast of characters of Black electeds wrapping their arms around Andrew Cuomo, reassuring him and reiterating their support, de facto, Black support for Andrew Cuomo. Obviously, there was some COVID money that was then sprinkled in certain neighborhoods afterwards. And it it ruffled me just a touch because it felt like an old trope of politician gets in trouble, white politician specifically, gets in trouble with kind of the masses and goes and finds solace in the Black bosom of Black electeds. And we're typically ready to embrace, which we did with Andrew Cuomo, which we've done in the past. And so I wanted to talk to you, since that was clearly on your mind, and maybe not in the same exact ways, but how and why it is that this trope seems to happen, and more specifically, how Andrew Cuomo used Black electeds or utilized Black electeds in a time of need. Which to me is a little trippy because we know if we, if we flash, flash backwards, when Andrew Cuomo ran against Carl McCall, he was on the outs with black electives for quite some time. And many people were wondering if his career could ever rebound. So I just wanted to, to get your initial thoughts on the visual and also the real.
0: No, I, I just so deeply appreciate... Uh, being able to have the conversation because, as you all well know, it's it's nuanced, right? It's it's something that was definitely sitting heavy on my spirit as we both um, look to with respect the the survivors of uh, Cuomo's ire and harassment. I think we have to have an expansive conversation about what allowed this syndicate to move for so long, right? And mm-hmm. so, I'm not at all saying that Hazel and and some of the other entities and institutions in Black communities were. Of the same milk of enabler as others, right? I'm not going to put that on them, but I think we have to be honest that there were a whole circle of people who didn't just enable but saw themselves as benefiting from an individual who was openly abusive and hostile, not just towards women or some of the white women who he did, but to whole communities, right, and was allowed to use the idea of support in black communities as as a shield when he was doing wrong, right. Rightfully, like openly and notoriously doing wrong, even if we want to for a moment sidebar the allegations of all these women. For decades, right, Cuomo has um, utilized the threat of the support of black clergy, the threat of the support of um, well-respected people in black communities like uh, Mother Duke and others uh, to hold a bay any type of accountability on his actions. And so for me, as I come to this movement as an organizer who's fully invested in this idea of of black liberation and this idea of dignity for our communities, I think there has to be a space where there is accountability that's that's tension filled, but hopefully in love to some of those orchestrators or at the very least um, enablers of Cuomo's abuse and toxic hold on the
3: state of New York. Dr. Greer, folks
0: who I previously thought is powerful. like Why would you stand next to someone who you knowingly has done wrong? Again, even if you didn't believe all, the allegation of all those abusers, we can all agree that what happened in the nursing home was, I don't. I, I want to be classy on this because, you know, my mama listened to this podcast, but surely thousands of dead abuelos and abuelas should cause someone to question, right? The Moreland Commission. I mean, the, the, the list goes on. And the reason why we say uh, people are exemplary is because they do something different than the masses. And here, there are a lot of folks today and yesterday who were saying they were the only person in the room saying no. But we know that's not true. Right. Right. Not only were they not saying no, they were at times helping to move forward uh, his agenda. Don't worry. I got that. I'm going to stand up and say you're with us. And anything counter to that is against black communities as if our communities are a monolith, as if one person can speak for all the depth and breadth of black and brown people across this amazing state. And I think a real reckoning about confusing individual power with community empowerment and how folks were, I will say what deeply sad is me, seemingly zealously moving for their own empowerment um, at the sake of communities, at the sake of over individuals, and how that allowed a culture of harm to continue. And I'm not going to use this, this uh, nebulous, toxic phrase that folks use. Like, oh, they, you know, they were doing harm. It's like, no, he was not just grabbing women, right? And, and, but he was threatening people's livelihoods and careers, right? Yeah. Like the, the Cuomo that everyone talks about off the record that's now being forced on the record is him calling and cussing you for filth on the phone at night. Talking about how he's going to ruin your life. You mm-hmm. thought you had a new job. Yeah, I called that employee. You dead there until you do what I Right. Like, so there was this whole orchestration. When I say syndicate, I don't say it lightly. Right. And a syndicate is an organization that has to have institutions that acknowledge it, accept it and play by their rules. And way too many people who say they were fighting for black communities join that syndicate. I can't say whether it was done volitionally, but they were down with it for way too long. Uh, and there has to be some conversation about that. So, I mean, this is why I think your
2: your use of the word power to me is really important because what that display when Cuomo went to Harlem, which I think is just, you know, that's a whole book in and of itself mm-hmm. when Cuomo goes to Harlem. When you talk about it, the visuals alone. The visuals alone, that's that's a volume, right? Mm-hmm. But it reinforced to me how the Black power structure is inextricably linked to the white power structure. Yes. The white power structure in some ways is linked to the black power structure. And that's what Cuomo was was nodding to in, in some ways. In a time of need, that's when the white power structure is linked to the black power structure. But by and large, every day, the black power structure is completely entangled with the white power structure. And when when the white power structure moves, so does the black power structure. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not this autonomous power where it seems as though people make decisions based on right. They make decisions based on strategy. Uh, in a time of crisis or soon to be crisis. And so that in and of itself is disheartening because it seems as though, I mean, my frustration with New York is we have a lot of quantity, but I'm not sure where the quality is. Like the descriptive representation is there. We've got AGs, we've got head of, you know, the legislature, we got head of the Senate, we got public advocate, we're about to have a mayor. I mean, it's like black on black on black, right? Half the city council, a significant portion of Albany, But what is changing substantively in the lives of black people in the state of New York is still called into question. And we can't only blame Cuomo and the the culture that he bred. There's something else in the water. And that's the piece I can't seem to figure out.
0: I agree wholeheartedly. Right. Like we're in a situation where we as a state will have, in appearance sake, right, as, as far as representation, the most quote-unquote powerful blacks in office at all levels of the state for the first time in history and still have a situation where the substantive material everyday experiences of black people in this state will not have changed right not one bit because we are moving from an individual i have the power as opposed to as you said a macro view and a strategy to move forward a better new york not just for black people even though that's what we're centering this in but for new yorkers right and so i think part of that is an understanding that Our black power structures or elected officials, to your point, are still moving, not just adjacent to white power structures, but are trying to mirror it. Right. So my concern is that we can have the fall of Cuomo and everybody's whistling past the grave. But understanding that that's the only institution that works and people try and recreate the very oppression that they spend years trying to take down. Right. I'm old enough to remember stories from my mom about Charlie Rangel being the line of Lennox who came to reform after maybe Adam Clayton Powell. Was not fully moving the way he should, and it speaks to that when you stay in office too long, sometimes you may forget who you're supposed to be moving for. Mm-hmm. And so, for me, as a young black woman, or I'm just keep saying young, young. Hey, listen,
2: we're going to ride this wave until until, he, until
0: somebody try and check it. <laughs> of folks who we, you know, this is that I began with a nuanced conversation because not I'm not, you know, what I, I guess some of my ire with my comrades who are on who are about. uh, who are on the progressive side, for lack of a better term, is this lack of no one is all one thing, right? No one's all a demon or a deity. And so I have a deep respect, um, in one instance, for folks like Mother Dukes and Charlie Wrangle, who've been putting in work longer than I've even been thought about on this earth. But at the same time, because of that deep love and respect for how they have moved, I would hope that there would be space for accountability about how they're not moving. I would say, in a way, that's with the better angels. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we would speak to an understanding that maybe both on my side, we think folks are more powerful than they are, or that they don't have an orientation to what power could look like when building a united front of black folks, of Latinx folks, of working class white folks, of people of conscience in New York who want to see it better, who still think of New York as a state that could be the beacon for the rest of the nation, right? Like so goes New York, so goes the nation. We have a little bit of everywhere in New York, right? Upstate folks say it's like a little bit like the Midwest, The devastation of jobs in some of these communities in the Hudson Valley and in the real upstate is is killing communities. Right. And it's the same Mm -hmm. thing that what we're seeing in other parts of the country. So what would it look like to have not just excitement around a black elected official, which, listen, I'm excited about another black mayor, but my excitement doesn't cloud an expectation Right. That things right. are going to move that allow my family and I right. to stay here or else we'll just be excited about a black mayor after I had to move down south. Right. I couldn't afford it anymore. Well, because a lot of a lot of electives, it's like when it comes to things for black people,
2: I did. A, I wrote a paper in graduate school that I never published because I think I was afraid to publish it because emotionally, not intellectually, mm-hmm. but emotionally, I didn't want to publish it. But I, I wrote a paper and did a quantitative analysis and game theoretic analysis of why it is better for Black people to elect White people to represent them. Because when they elect Black people, Black people tend to cater to the White minority that got them into office, by and large. Um, And I struggle with kind of what that looks like because we have far too many Black electeds who happen to be Black, but don't necessarily work on behalf of Black issues, largely because they don't want to be seen as working on behalf of Black black issues. issues. And so we have this cycle, I think, right now in New York, also where when I see the work that you've done, I was talking to Dorian Warren of Community Change last night uh, and really comparing the 21st century organizing that some people are doing, I would include you in that group, and the 20th century organizing that we're seeing with, you know, Uncle Charlie and Hazel Dukes and a lot of folks who still understand what levers of power look like, but it's not necessarily in a 21st century model that pushes white electeds especially to do more than what I would argue is the bare minimum. Because I don't understand how we have the quantity that we have, and we don't have any substantive, life-changing policy proposals. And I understand that there's a local, state, federal conversation that that has to be had, and there's money situations and historical context. But where Black people are in New York is highly disproportionate to the amount of representation that is present in New York, and that's a that's something that we can't just put on Cuomo.
0: A hundred percent, and I just want to thank you for even lifting up the the fear around it, not intellectually, because I know your research was was sound and on the mark. But what that means, both individually, how that you know deeply saddens me, but what that means even in discourse, because for so long. These types of nuanced conversations weren't had uh, publicly because of, listen, we are about a movement because we're in a struggle for for dignity and, and um, recognition in this world and are clear that there are forces who would use a conversation that's based in love about substantive critique and try and make it something else. And I don't right. think that served us because we have to have a point where we sit down and say, listen, four of the five county leaders in New York City are black, right? The speaker is black. The head of the Senate is black. The AG is, right, like the mayor of the second largest city is could be a black woman, right, if India wins. And so at what point do we say that representation is not important but is not the paramount issue when make, making tangible change for people in this world? Um, and it gives me great sadness because I, uh, to go back to your initial about the visuals of coming to Harlem, it was, you know, largely seen as the black mecca of the world forever. I'm the child of immigrants. My father came here. He came to Harlem from Ghana because... It is, you know, he said, it is Harlem. Right. That where's a black man go. You know, I know Eddie right. Murphy went to Queens. Kofi came to Harlem because where else would you go? So the fact that he could come and, and dispatch folks so quickly to stand like a wall behind him to try and shield him from wrong that he has perpetrated on black communities
1: mm-hmm.
0: is astounding to me particularly when I think about the historic and current role that black churches have played, right? We're talking about individuals, but I also want to add entities and institutions to the conversation, right? This uh, parody that folks sometimes trot out of, I'll just, you know, click my heels and get a pastor to stand next to me or get a reverend to stand next to me, and that's going to make things all right. When we know that there are people of the cloth who are fighting every day to make this state better and who really take uh, faith and action to mean something in their soul and spirit, Right. For him to try and use and I'm talking about the governor, soon to be former governor, try and use institutions that have played, uh, I would say, a, a, an immeasurable role in saving our lives and changing the quality of the life for black people, not just in America, but across the world as an orchestration of his power. And uh, this pawn game in this thirst sickens and saddens me, mm-hmm. which is only more so done by the folks who willingly did it. Mm-hmm. Right. When you started talking about just even the history of how this man had been able to be a chameleon. I'm old enough to remember where it was like Cuomo stopped what should have been the first black governor, a man named Carl McCall. Right. Now, all of a sudden, he's all good because right. he's got some colored sprinkle in and he gave some money, allegedly, to whoever you know needed to. And mm-hmm. what was all this done for a pop up covid center in your church? Right. We not worth more than a pop up pastor. Right.
2: I mean, and that's I think that's my frustration. It's like the crumbs
1: the crumbs that, that these elected
2: officials are still excited about as as we understand the challenges that face black communities specifically and explicitly, and I'm not even talking about during covid but the excitement for crumbs is disappointing and I mean and harry before i, I bring you in, you know it, it's one of those things if you where. Even this conversation, I feel like, is somewhat of a landmine. Like, we're walking around oh, yeah. landmines. Because, like, let's be let's be 100. Mm-hmm. If this was Chrissy and Afia on the phone, this <laughs> conversation would look real different. Mm-hmm. And we would have a lot of name-checking that we're not having right now. Because we're still, I think that there's an age thing that's going right. on. There's, a, there's some gender elements to this where we are being respectful. And we also, th- these conversations, I mean, this is why it was so hard to write Black ethnics. Because... You never want what you say or write to get into the wrong hands, which we know can happen. And this very nuanced conversation that we're trying to have can fall into the wrong hands and be weaponized against Black people. 100%. Like, not just us, just Black people, Black Black communities, Black Mm -hmm. electeds. And so having this conversation behind closed doors, but then slowly but surely opening the door so we can have it honestly, is like what we struggled with under Obama, what we'll continue to struggle with under Eric Adams. I mean, I, you know, we talked about this. The second Eric Adams was elected, I was like, I can't believe I'm defending Eric Adams hard right now to certain folks. And it's like, and I never expected to do that. But I was just like, there's that classist, racist undertone in discussing Eric Adams, where now I got to stand up for Eric Adams, like in the paint, for real, for real. So- This is, it's just, you know, so I was like, I'm about to spend four years sticking up for Eric Adams. I I mean, I might have to if, you know, sort of the young white press doesn't get itself together. So I, I just, I think that this is the beginning of a conversation. I really appreciate you coming on to sort of help us just begin to excavate some of the complicated, not just intellectual feelings, but the emotional feelings that a lot of people have when it comes to representation and black electeds. I mean, we haven't even talked about, you know, Perkins. We haven't talked about a lot of folks that represent something and we need to have a deeper conversation about, and it's just very difficult to have. Harry, what were you going to say?
1: So, Othea, I just wanted to ask you, there's this breakdown that you guys have been talking about uh, between black people and the politicians, black and white, who are representing those black people that's been ongoing for a long time. It was very dramatic with Cuomo in his last days. Uh, But these deals are always happening. I'm just curious, like structurally, right, in terms of voting systems, things like rank choice and how redistricting works, in terms of governance, and, and then in terms of how this political deal should work, what needs to change and what some of the mechanics are that as some of these older folks age out would help ensure the politicians do a better job of representing their constituents and the black constituents in particular going forward and get punished when they fail to do that that we have not had up until now as you guys have been discussing.
0: I appreciate the question and I I think this because you know I said no one is above critique or accountability and I think that holds true for folks on my side, right, and movement side, I'd say a big issue that we have to deal with is that there's not, I would argue, the support and institutional support, particularly for a lot of Black electeds, right? I think a lot of folks who uh, we've been excited about, or I've, I've been excited about and organizationally organization we've been excited about, can come in with a lot of energy, a lot of exuberance, and meet, right, kind of a brick wall of institution that's been built for, you know, hundreds of years. And so what's the institute, what's the support that would allow folks to translate the big, bold ideas that they campaigned on into real policy? And those are coming now, but I'd say not in the same way and with the same infrastructure that a lot of these other entities have. And then I also say, listen, a lot of these of my sage elders who have been um, in these rooms for a long time, I would say may not see for themselves the same type of green pasture on the outside. Right. And it's 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 unfortunate to say, uh, but organized, we say there's no martyrs in this world. People move in their interest. Um, and so I'd say that folks who have been in a room for a long time, it may be difficult to come out and see what's there. And that folks may not believe fully that there's things out there for them that allow them to move forward in grace and dignity with also respect for what they've done. Uh, I can't think about how many conversations I've had with Dr. Greer and, and other sisters of mine saying like, why is this person still doing this? They could be a sage elder that everybody would come and see for conversation to learn for mentorship. And I've learned that at times people do not see how powerful they really are. Externally, we're all thinking like, what did this guy, is? this woman could be the queen maker. She, why are you running again? You, you don't need, like some of these are flipping back and forth in seats. You don't, you don't need this right? You could start institutions that the policy and think tanks to create the infrastructure that you didn't have the benefit of. Uh, And I'm clear that sometimes it's not just a crisis of conscience, but a crisis of vision and support. Um, And I'll say what, what saddens me most about this whole thing is, I think that Cuomo has a deeper understanding of the importance and value of Black communities than we do sometimes. Because he only orchestrates people to be around him who he think can actually be the shield, right? Like, a lot of us do this, these games and it's esoteric and academic. Uh, and one thing I'll say, you no, know, Cuomo does this for real. So if he's bringing together people to be a shield is because he thinks that shield going to hold, which means he thinks these people are strong uh, who could equally cut him the other way. But don't. So I, I take the critique and say that on the movement side, clearly we haven't done what we need to to say. It's not going to be, you know, uh, beautiful and easy on the other side, but you can keep your conscience We can build something better and we can actually win. And I'm sure I'm clear that we have not made that reality apparent to folks because they think it's a pipe dream. Uh, I like to think that folks start with good intention, particularly folks who've been on the front lines from before I was born. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt of good intention um, and say that maybe after decades of doing it alone, it gets difficult uh, and that maybe my generation has not done enough to show that, like, not only is our community amazing and powerful, but we can do it. And you don't have to do the other thing if you don't want to. It ain't going to be easy So it wasn't easy for them to get in the position they're in. But there's another way.
2: You know, what's interesting that we haven't talked about is so much of the black loyalty that we see for Cuomo. I'm curious is if it's a holdover from his father. I absolutely think so. You know, like how many people just like, listen, we had a relationship with his daddy and the son ain't like the daddy, but that's never the case anyway. So here we are.
0: I think so. I think the piece on name recognition is real, right? Even if it's the the last name. Um, yeah, sometimes it absolutely baffles me, but I, I think that is absolutely real. And I think there's a piece of, you know, once we you see others who are in the community in support and who are at times almost... You know, given a testimony about what Cuomo has done for them, they're like, okay, well, then this is going to be good, perchance, for us. And mm-hmm. if, to your point earlier, I think uh, the the fear about conversations and critique taken and weaponized against our communities, or black communities, on black elders, is real. So it it makes it so difficult at times to have the conversation. Uh, and that's why I'm so grateful that you were willing to. And I, I'm here because I feel safe with y'all um, and have and learned because I'm just so deeply saddened by this that I think we have to be in a point where we're ready to have some courageous conversations in love um, and fight fiercely if it is weaponized. But the idea of just having it on the phone um, or with you know, a sister circle uh, is not about power building. And this is going to replicate it if conversations aren't had. And and I also Mm -hmm. feel it's important to note that I'm hoping that a lot of communities are having nuanced conversations, right? Because when we talk about feminism, there were a lot of women who were lining up to be toxic too. Right. So I hope there's a whole Uh lot of reckoning and different aspects of community in the midst of the Cuomo fallout about what could have been done and how it could have been done better. Uh, So that's that's what makes me a little freer to have that conversation about this aspect.
2: Well, I mean, I've said this in print in, on this podcast, like, the keepers of patriarchy have always been white women. Well. Period. So, like, I don't know why we're shocked, you know, with DeRosa and other folks. It's like, that's how this machine has existed for mm-hmm. however many centuries. I mean, you, you can't have patriarchy with, without white women. Uh, and Cuomo got that, too. Like, he understands yes. these intersections. You know, the Women's Equity Party, Christine Quinn, cut it out. You didn't know? You didn't know this was Lord of the Flies? You like, didn't know he was Jack and you thought you were Ralph? Please,
0: stop you, it. Like on that's TV acting shocked. I was like, where's the statement from the Women's Equity Party, ma'am? Where's the statement? <laughs> what had happened? <laughs> Why was it formed? Right. You're shocked <laughs> that he did this when he formed a whole party to right. take right. out another party and propped up a like To take out another woman <laughs> to ask you to carry the water to do so? Stop it. Like,
2: you know, if you're going to do it, do it. Right. If you're going to be a monkey, be a gorilla. That is the phrase. Mm. So, like, if you're going to carry his water, carry it across the finish line and say, I did it. I did it to take out another woman. I yep. did it to have a job. Like, I knew what this was. I got two eyes and two ears. Like, don't pretend now that you're clutching your pearls. And it's like, oh, my goodness, I was taken advantage of. I'm a damsel in distress. No, you're not, Christine no. Quinn. No, you're not. Because you sided with Mayor Bloomberg and you knew what you were going to do when you're trying to be mayor. So, like, you're smart. Like, don't be smart and then try and act dumb. Because we know you're smart. That's why we rolled with you in the first place. So I think that, you know, when we look at so many women in Albany, like the reckoning, I think a lot of people are like, the men, the men, they're probably shaking in their boots. It's like, but the reckoning can only come if it's the men and the women. Women. Like, until we have that conversation, which I don't know who wants to have that one, but Black women have been clamoring to have that conversation Mm -hmm. with our... First, second, third, fourth. I don't know what wave of feminism we're on. I'm out of it. I'm like, I'm good. Y'all figure it out with your pink hats and call me later. So I just feel like here we are in this moment where we're about to have Kathy Hochul, who has distanced herself from the governor. Because she had no idea. She had no idea. No idea. She <laughs> no had no idea that he was talking. I, I, I don't know what that man was doing. Uh-huh. So here we are again. See previous comments from 30 seconds ago. And we have Kathy Hokel. And I'm really curious, and we got to make sure we have you back on the podcast when we talk about the primary. Because if Tish James and Jamani Williams and Kathy Hochul, and a sprinkling of white men who wake up every morning, brush their teeth, and say that they should be governor with zero qualifications, they're going to be in that bucket too. Mm -hmm. This is going to be the wild, wild west of who gets to represent the state of New York and the coalition building that is going to happen, and the black electeds who will line up based on who they think has power to get them them the crumbs that they're accustomed to getting.
0: 100%. So, I would love to come back and have that conversation. And I agree it's going to be the wild West and what remains is going to be the importance of the ethnic vote, right? Black vote, Latinx vote. um, Because I agree. I think this primary is going to be interesting and colorful. (laughs) And there'll be a whole bunch of folks looking to stand in crowded church pews, right? Oh yeah. In hot community centers, to talk about a past of being the only one in the room who said no. No one else can remember it, but they remembered it as clear Mm -hmm. as day. They told Cuomo to his face that this was wrong uh, and has always been a champion for communities of color and women. And so part of this is going to be, I would say, an organizing job of of deep political education so that people can call BS early and often. Um, But also in like how, to your point, I'm really interested to see how people move, right? Will they be clamoring to to sh- say that they can turn out the Black vote in exchange for mere crumbs and the promise of the illusion of access? Or is there going to be a substantive conversation about real accountability, about really delivering things tangibly to make people's lives better? And I, I am excited to see what And to what that, happen.
2: I would say, <laughs> show me the receipts, because <laughs> that will be... That's that's what we'll be looking for. Mm-hmm. All the people who didn't know, and all the people who said that they stood up. That's fine. That's totally fine. Just show me the receipts, and we can move on.
0: And it's going to be interesting, right? We already see the effort to sanitize uh, Hochul's, uh past, right? She, and, uh, she was she was against apartheid. Did you know? Oh, really? She was maybe she was okay with them South African immigrants as long as they stayed in South Africa, but the ones over here couldn't get no driver's license under her. Like we got, I remember half. that. <laughs>
2: like, I remember that. I remember no driver's license.
0: No driver's license for you. <laughs> get out of the state of New York. <laughs> so but, you know,
2: short memories we have. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I, I'm I'm interested to for those conversations and for important institutions like this podcast to help uh, shine a light on it and remind people of things that they happen to forget about. Yeah, And make a, some folks, some candidates answer questions accordingly.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's the beginning of many important conversations, especially as we get into campaign season, which I thought was going to be nice and smooth. I don't know why. I don't know why, <laughs> but I just thought we'd have a, a, maybe a somewhat interesting campaign season, but clearly FAQ NYC will be on it. So thank you again for joining us, Afia Atamensa.
1: Thank you. F-A-Q.
2: F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn, Manhattan and Queens. A special thank you to our special guest host, Katie Honan, as well as Afia Atamensa. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be well, wear a mask, wash your hands, and we'll see you next week.